You well know I love you, and will sacrifice anything on my own account. I have feared bringing you into trouble, for I repeat to you that spies are just upon me. But I will try to elude them tonight, and once more have a happy lover, in spite of fate. This is a letter from August 1861 to Confederate spy Rose O'Neill Greenhow, who had been secretly infiltrating many Union officials in order to leak information about military tactics to the Confederate Army. The National Archives has this letter titled, Love Letter from Henry Wilson to Rose O'Neill Greenhow. Today, we're going to discuss the rumored affair between Henry Wilson and a Confederate spy. This is Henry Wilson and the Civil War. Rose O'Neill Greenhow was a tall and charming woman with piercing black eyes and long, straight black hair. Greenhow lived a fascinating life, becoming close with many Washington socialites like President Buchanan, John C. Calhoun, and of course, Henry Wilson. Greenhow held deep sympathies with the Confederacy and following her husband's death, became a spy for the South and is credited with being one of the reasons the Union had failed at Bull Run. Greenhow told PGT Beauregard that Wilson told her details about the Union strategy preceding Bull Run, allowing the Confederates to have an upper hand in preparing for the battle. Wilson and Greenhow did know each other, this is without question, and it is certainly possible that Wilson may have exposed some of the details of the planned mission through Bull Run, but what is up for question is how far their relationship actually went. The National Archives has a file with ten letters to Greenhow, supposedly from Wilson. Most of the letters are romantic and suggest Wilson was having an affair. Many contemporary historians have jumped on this story, and some of the most frequent citations of Wilson in the modern day come from or mention this ordeal, though looking at the evidence, it seems likely that Wilson did not, in fact, have an affair. Well, first of all, Washington in those days was a small community. Everybody knew everybody else's business. Here again is Wilson biographer John L. Myers. I just can't grasp that Wilson was so dumb that he would have had an affair with Rose Greenhow. Everybody knew that Rose Greenhow was the socialite capital of Washington uh, during the Buchanan administration. Uh, it certainly was no question that in any involvement with that would damage his political career. Looking at the letters in the archive file, the letters sent to Greenhow do not contain Wilson's handwriting, and most are just signed with an H, in a different style than Wilson's usual signature. The letters also place the writer in different locations and situations than Wilson was at the time. And since the supposed affair happened in the early months of 1861, it's unlikely Wilson would have had the time to sneak around with Greenhow, as Harriet 
was also in Washington for much of the time. It seems dumb to me to think that uh, he was involved with her. Now, there's no question that she was eager to destroy his reputation, and uh, she tried to do so by some of the remarks that she made about their relationship. Furthermore, the little I can find about Wilson's relationship with his wife, he was very much devoted to his wife. And I, I think that has to be taken into account. Uh, Rose Greenhow, of course, was observed by the army from rather early in the war, as long as she remained in her home. And uh, I can't imagine Wilson visiting there. Biographers, including John Myers, have concluded that the letters were not from Wilson. Ernest McKay, another biographer of Wilson, speculated letters were from a clerk, Horace White, who at the time worked for the Military Affairs Committee and whose handwriting matches in the letters. There's a possibility Greenhow lied about the Wilson affair in order to disgrace his legacy, but when the story was exposed in the 1870s, little harm was done. So, in conclusion, Wilson did not have an affair with Greenhow, but did know her and may have reasonably spoken carelessly about Union strategy. Evidence is scarce that Greenhow's knowledge even had that big of an impact on Bull Run's outcome. So, in the end, the entire fiasco resulted in very little consequence for Wilson's perception or for the Union going forward. Greenhow was arrested for her covert activities by Union officers in 1862 and deported to the Confederacy after a few months in prison. While still in Union possession, Wilson, with a group of others, visited her. Wilson went away from his visit in the jail, passionate about getting Greenhow sent to the Confederates. Following her release, Greenhow traveled to London, where she wrote and published a popular memoir, and then, in 1864, while returning back to a North Carolina port, her ship ran aground, and her lifeboat capsized as she attempted to escape a Union gunboat. Greenhow, weighed down by her eccentric jewelry and gold-laced undergarments, drowned, and her life and perceived heroism was celebrated by the Confederacy. In the later half of 1861, President Lincoln appointed Wilson to serve in General McClellan's staff, though after a sleepless day of inspecting miles of lines of men, Wilson stepped back in his hands-on role, though he remained active behind the scenes. While organizing military enforcements in Massachusetts, Wilson founded his own militia regiment, the 22nd Massachusetts Regiment, taking on the nickname the Henry Wilson Regiment. The 2,300-man group, with Wilson at its lead, departed from Boston on October 8th amidst a great celebration. From Boston, the men entered New York City, where they were greeted with even more commotion as greeters lined the streets and waved from windows as Colonel Wilson and the 22nd Regiment passed through town. After a gathering of many powerful northern politicians, the regiment continued on its way to D.C., on October 11th, the men entered Washington to the greeting of President Lincoln, who was taking a ride when he saw the regiment pass by. The 22nd, 
then traveled to their destined location in northern Virginia, where they were incorporated into another brigade, and Wilson bid the men farewell before traveling back to the capital to resume his position as military chair. Wilson had been busy writing the legislation funding the calls for more troops when rumors of scandal began to swirl. Wilson had been accused of obtaining a government contract to make shoes for soldiers. Wilson stood in an excellent position to make millions selling his influence and contracting out his business talents for the consumption of the army, but he didn't. In fact, Wilson had not been active in the shoemaking business for many years. In a letter to the New York Tribune, Wilson denied all allegations of corruption and asserted he never held any business connection with the government, and had in fact lost money in funding his regiment. Wilson also expressed the fact that the money which he was paid for for his service as a colonel went straight to funding the regimentary hospital. Most newspapers dismissed the allegations and Wilson came away from the supposed scandal scoff-free and his reputation unmarred. Throughout the rest of 1861, Wilson spent a lot of his time visiting Union camps to inspect soldiers and get a better understanding of their needs. Then, going back to Washington to inform the Secretary of War and formulate effective legislation with Lincoln. Military legislation was more than just making sure troops were well enforced. Wilson needed to deal with things like paying all of the soldiers, planning what food they would eat and how, their shelter, their medical care, and their travel, along with many other intricacies of war. With everything else to consider, Wilson also had to keep an eye on the budget to ensure the nation, at a loss of revenue, managed its debts. Here again is Senate historian Betty Coed. And with Henry Wilson, he became chair of the, the Committee on Military Affairs in the Senate. And he had he was a person with long military experience at the state level. And when he became the, the Military Affairs Committee, he really became a strong uh, proponent of building the military preparedness for the Union Army, but also, interestingly, was very concerned about the, the treatment of soldiers, the, the conditions they worked in, the housing they had, the, the uniforms they wore. And he got very involved in all the little details of how you, how you raise support and organize an army and played a really pivotal role throughout the war as chairman of military affairs. Well, at any time in the Senate, that's an important position but it certainly was a very important position during the Civil War. Uh, there was a lot of legislation that had to be passed. The chairman of the House Military Affairs Committee uh, changed. Uh, furthermore, the House was not, and I guess still not, is not quite as powerful as the Senate. So Wilson's continuity as chairman of that committee was very key with the Civil War legislation. And, and he had to make sure it got through. There obviously were a number of people in the Senate who uh, were not, not willing to do this kind of thing uh, to support the war effort. Uh, several of them were somewhat of a danger uh, to the war effort. 
Wilson wasn't a free spender and gave a lot of considerations for the best ways to appropriate funds. Wilson received bad press when he was hesitant to pass legislation that would have increased the number of men in service. Wilson contended that there were enough soldiers already, and the budget couldn't take paying the salaries of tens of thousands of more fighters. Wilson believed that if the Union could strategically supply regiments with adequate resources, they could outman the Confederates, whose resources were poorly managed and soon became quickly depleted. Wilson was also hesitant to pour funds into cavalry regiments, which had proven to not be so effective, except in the Western theater. The need for more soldiers became more apparent, and Lincoln's calls for more volunteers strengthened the army. But the growing conflict pushed the president to need even more men. In August of 1862, Wilson introduced legislation to modify a 1795 law to give the president expansive powers in raising an army and forming a draft. Lincoln called for another 300,000 men to join the Union effort, and any state that failed to reach their quota would be required to draft men into the army in order to satisfy the requirement. 1862 was a year hampered with heavy casualties on both sides, but in the first half of the year, a series of Union losses brought the morale of the northern nation down. The year brought with it some of its most important battles, including, but not limited to, the Second Battle of Bull Run, Antietam, Shiloh, Corinth, and Harper's Ferry. Wilson was with Lincoln in the White House when he learned of the heavy blows to the Union Army at the Battle of Fredericksburg in January 1862. That battle is considered to be one of the worst defeats of the Union, with Union casualties nearly doubled that of the Confederates. Though military affairs consumed so much of his time, Wilson never forgot about the cause the war had been started over. In the end of 1861 and throughout the first half of 1862, Wilson pressed upon his congressional colleagues and President Lincoln to do more for the cause of emancipation. Any action in favor of enslaved or free blacks needed to be done as lightly as possible to ensure the border states would not depart the Union. The border states were Missouri, Kentucky, Delaware, Maryland, and later West Virginia, which held slaves but voted against secession. These states were essential to maintaining a strong Union position, and any bold act against slavery would push these states towards secession. While many of the slave masters had left the Union, the slave power still held a powerful vice over Congress. Any act against slavery needed to be met with a concession for the cause of victory. In concurrence with the Republican platform, any action ushered by Republicans challenging slavery needed to be constitutional. Not only was emancipation a challenge because of the South's interests, but many in the North feared free blacks would steal Northern jobs, making it even more challenging to build a consensus around what would happen if enslaved people were free. In the summer of 1861, Wilson supported the first Confiscation Act, which allowed for the Union Army to seize property of those active in the rebellion. Because Confederates viewed enslaved blacks as property 
any slave owner participating in the army or political doings of the Confederacy could have their human property seized and freed by the Union. In December 1861, Wilson introduced a bill that called for the abolition of slavery in D.C. The bill ignited much debate in the city, with many racistly fearing that the city would succumb to chaos and disorder with blacks given freedom. Debate in the Senate once again heated up over the bill, with Wilson's opponents erroneously arguing that free blacks would force white women into marriage. As pointed out at the time, the argument was nonsensical and ironic, as many southern slave owners, including men who had been in the Senate, had children with the women that they claimed to own. During the debates, Wilson noticed a group of free blacks in the gallery and felt a duty to continue his push for the Emancipation Bill, along with his fight to end the racist and unjust laws that cruelly punished blacks for minor aggressions against whites. Wilson used his skills of political coercion, which he had honed from the time he was a young man in the Massachusetts legislature, to manage the bill through Congress in the early months of 1862. Wilson was a forceful and principled politician who could call out the evils his colleagues upheld while maintaining a friendly relationship with them once business was done. These relationships contributed to his effectiveness as a leader and legislator. On April 16th, Wilson's Emancipation Bill became law, freeing the thousands of enslaved people throughout the federally maintained city of Washington, D.C. Black Americans in D.C. would no longer be subject to the heinous treatment by their masters. One of the principal goals of the warriors for, for Wilson and his colleagues, of course, was abolition and emancipation. And one of the things that Wilson was extremely involved in was to uh, emancipate slaves in the District of Columbia. And he was the person who introduced the bill that became the 1862 Emancipated Compensation, the Compensated Emancipation Act, which freed the slaves in, in the District of Columbia in 1862. And then he also went on to, to really strongly advocate and push Lincoln to issue a general emancipation proclamation, which came in 1863. Wilson's bill was the first time the federal government had acted to abolish slavery in a territory and became a useful example for future acts of abolition. Even following his victory for the cause of freedom in D.C., Wilson knew that emancipating a few thousand blacks in the capital did little to ease the tremendous oppression which they faced throughout the country. Wilson and Sumner, along with Speaker of the House Thaddeus Stevens, frequently made their way to the White House to hold meetings with the president to pressure him to pass an Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln felt that the time for emancipation had not yet come, and the morale of the Confederates was too high to make any move that could risk victory. Lincoln viewed emancipation not as an act of morality, but as a political act. Wilson, Sumner, and Stevens knew the evils of slavery and felt that the freedom of men could wait no longer. One day, as the three men walked towards the White House, Lincoln saw them approach and jokingly remarked, quote, Here comes the same three damn fellers again. End quote. 
The men became a thorn in Lincoln's side, with the president saying, quote, Stevens, Sumner, and Wilson haunt me with their importunities for a proclamation of emancipation. Where I go and whatever way I turn, they are on my trail, and still in my heart I have a deep conviction that the hour has not yet come, end quote. But there is a famous statement of Lincoln that uh, here comes Wilson again, or here comes Stevens again. I can't think, remember which. Uh, apparently, they were coming far too often to, to see Lincoln far uh, more frequently than what he wanted. And uh, uh, Lincoln was in no position uh, not to uh, uh, support Wilson in any way he could. In an amendment to a bill which provided education to black children in D.C., Wilson successfully added that all blacks should be treated equally under the law and be subject to the same laws and punishments as whites. Wilson had become a proponent for allowing black Americans to serve in the military, a move Lincoln had continued to be hesitant of. In July, Wilson introduced a bill that allowed for the draft of black soldiers and freed any enslaved families who joined the army. By the end of the summer, Wilson had begun to speak harshly about Lincoln around Washington because of his resistance to both emancipation and using black soldiers. In an effort to satisfy both the impassioned senators and ensure the border state's solidarity with the Union, Lincoln announced the Emancipation Proclamation an act of war that all the enslaved individuals in rebellious states were, quote, thenceforth and forever free, end quote. Lincoln strategically announced the proclamation at a key point in the war, when Southerners were growing concerning influence in the march towards victory. European countries, which had been remaining neutral in the conflict, began to lean in the direction of the Confederacy, who had for decades provided European manufacturers with cheap cotton. The proclamation made the war not just about reunification, but explicitly about slavery. Any nation which recognized the Confederacy upheld and supported slavery, an institution that had been abolished in most European countries for decades. Wilson was overjoyed that Lincoln had succumbed to his pressure and acted to free the enslaved population of the South. Wilson knew that no matter how compromised the proclamation was, it was one step closer towards the complete abolition of slavery, regardless of the reasons that enticed Lincoln. On January 1, 1863, the Emancipation went into effect, and the millions of enslaved people in the Southern Confederacy were now, at least in law, free. In today's episode, we covered Wilson's alleged affair with Rose O'Neill Greenhow, Wilson's leadership of the 22nd Regiment, some of the major military conflicts in 1862, along with the important legislation Wilson pushed for, and we covered Wilson's work on emancipation and civil rights, especially his D.C. Emancipation Bill. We ended by looking at the Emancipation Proclamation. Thank you to my guests from today's episode, Betty Coed from the U.S. Senate, Wilson biographer John L. Myers. If you have any questions or comments, please shoot an email to henrywilsonpodcast at gmail.com. 
And if you're interested in doing more reading and seeing some images from this time, head to henrywilsonhistory.com. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to continuing into the life of Henry Wilson.